Hello again. Thank you, Val. It really is great to be with you all today. Excellent. Well, Aisha, Ari, and I went back to Sydney a couple of weeks ago for my Bible college graduation. And we stayed with friends, Mus and Talia, in a really leafy green part of Sydney uh, that is apparently also home to a lot of snakes, which was kind of scary with our little boy crawling around their yard. Talia works as a nurse in a local hospital, and she reassured us that, according to her colleagues, with all the anti-venom now available, nobody living in the city really needs to be scared of dying from a snake bite. Unless, unless you choose not to take up the treatment that's available. And there's this story floating around the hospital of one man who was bitten by a snake last year. And instead of seeking help, he decided to go to bed and deal with it in the morning. And it's almost comical, isn't it? Except very sadly, this guy didn't live to deal with it later. Now, what would possess someone who presumably knows it's not great to get bitten by a snake to deny the evidence like that and just go to bed as if life is normal? That's an extreme example, but the more I've thought about that story, the more I've found something kind of relatable about that response. You know, sometimes a problem is just so confronting that it's easier to turn a blind eye and just keep living as if things are okay. Like when there's conflict in a relationship and it's nice just to pretend that things are fine, even though the evidence is there that some work is needed. What about when it comes to God? Have you ever had that experience of knowing that Jesus matters, but It's just easier to kind of keep going with the status quo as if he's not there. Or do you know the frustration of trying to explain in a rational way the evidence for Jesus only to be met with disinterest or maybe even hostility? How can we live in a world that denies the evidence and protests against Jesus' rule? That's the question Jesus' followers in Luke found themselves up against. And here at the end of chapter 19, they're so close to the end of a long, long trip to Jerusalem. And given all the amazing things they've seen Jesus do along the way, there's a bit of excitement as they approach the holy city. Surely Jesus is about to burst in as king of God's kingdom and all will be right in the world. But... In the parable Jesus tells just before today's passage, he says it won't be like that. There is rejection and death waiting for Jesus. And while they wait for his triumphant return, his disciples are going to live in a world that doesn't want him to be king. That denies the evidence and tries to get on with life as normal. It's a familiar situation, isn't it? So how do we go about living in that kind of world? It'd be pretty tempting to give up or just to shrink back from associating with Jesus, which is exactly what's about to happen for these disciples. In these famous scenes that Val's just read out for us, Jesus is preparing his followers not only to cope, but to thrive in a world that tries to ignore him. And Luke gives us three ways to find joy and meaning 
in following Jesus in a turbulent world. And that'll be our headings uh, there, kind of on your outlines. Point one, confident in the Lord's control. Have a look with me again from verse 29. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. And according to verse 32, that's exactly what happens, detail for detail. Now, if Jesus has such specific knowledge about where this donkey is, why doesn't he just go and get it rather than explaining to his disciples? Well, he knows that they're about to witness a mixed response as he rides into town. That's going to end up in outrage. So he's teaching them that nothing that's about to happen will take Jesus by surprise. He is calmly and expertly in the driver's seat or saddle, even over the hard and bewildering bits. It's captured nicely by the title that Luke gives to Jesus twice in this part of the story. The Lord. Now, if you've been hanging around churches for a while, you're probably used to Jesus being called the Lord. But Jesus and Luke are choosing their words carefully. The Lord means the boss, the master. And how appropriate at this point. And what's more, just like today, the Lord is a title often used for God. And again, how appropriate. As we see the story go on, it becomes clear that not only Jesus have claim over someone else's donkey, he has claim over every person and every pebble. On the brink of their journeys, and Jesus wants his first followers to have confidence in the Lord's control. They have a master who expertly chose the humble option. With his divine insight, Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse. And although everything that was about to unfold in that city would have seemed like a disaster, Jesus chose the way of the cross so that clueless disciples then and now might have peace with God. Can you imagine how having that confidence would have helped those first Christians after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to his father's right hand. They were often not highly regarded, sometimes opposed, often slow to learn. And unlike this bit of Luke where Jesus tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen and when, Jesus' disciples don't always know how each win or loss fits into the big picture But through all those ups and downs, there's never any doubt Jesus is calmly and expertly building his church detail by detail. How might the Lord's control give you confidence? When things are a little bit more humble than you might have liked? When things are hard or even bewildering? Jesus is still calmly and expertly fulfilling his mission to seek and save lost sinners like us. And these two unnamed disciples get an amazing glimpse of their Lord's absolute authority as they got ready for that last leg of their trip. And so in a gesture of loyalty to their king, they take off their clothing and lay it on the donkey's back for Jesus to ride on. 
But that's just the beginning of Jesus' royal reception. Point two, don't leave it to the stones. And so this strange scene unfolds with Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on a donkey that is commandeered from a local village with a bunch of his disciples laying their clothing down on the path for him to ride along like a makeshift red carpet. It's a bit like in primary school when there's a wedding on the oval at lunchtime and you know all the year twos gather around and someone's the bride with a few sour sobs in her hat and there's a groom with a chisel for the ring. Here we have this royal procession with a bunch of misfits and fishermen. But unlike the primary school oval, there's something much more than meets the eye going on here. The Lord has chosen this moment carefully. He didn't ride a donkey just because he couldn't find a horse. No, he was saying something specific about himself. Centuries before Jesus turned up, Zechariah promised a day for God's people who were toiling under a foreign power in Jerusalem, waiting for a king to bring God's promises to fulfillment. And Zechariah said, part of it's there, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9 verse 9. And here is that humble king. Come to bring peace to God's people at long last. And in a rare moment of clarity, this crowd of disciples gets it. They've seen Jesus do things only God can do. They've witnessed him just heal a a blind man with a word. And so this makeshift crowd bursts into song. Have a look at their lyrics in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's a mashup of two songs from the Bible and it's perfect for this moment. The second line sounds a lot like the song that the angels sang when they announced the birth of a savior in David's city. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's from Luke 2. And the first line comes out of Psalm 118, this great Old Testament hymn where God's people celebrate being saved by an unlikely saviour. It paints a picture of Israel's king leading his people through the city gates and being welcomed into the temple. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples have heard God's promises. They've seen what Jesus has done. And they conclude, Jesus is this long-awaited king. Blessed is the king who comes to save us from our enemies and bring us real peace. For those with eyes to see, this humble king really is praiseworthy. And yet he's protested too. Let's read verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Now, unlike the disciples, these well-versed moral community leaders are offended by this display. And they come to Jesus kind of as a peer. Come on, Jesus, this is getting out of hand. So which response is more reasonable? The Pharisees have a point, right? 
the people singing to Jesus are making a big claim. They're saying this man riding on the dirty road is the one everyone has been waiting for. You can imagine these leaders thinking, let's not be flippant here. And yet, isn't it a bit ironic that the fishermen get what's going on with Zechariah and the Psalms and the angels' song, and the well-versed teachers only see a threat riding on their turf with a donkey. But that's the tragedy. As Jesus nears the end of his trip to Jerusalem, it seems like it's the end of the road for the Pharisees. They've seen all the evidence and decided to go on with life as normal with them in charge. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think of people very dear to me who have looked into who Jesus is, seen how important he is, read the Bible, acknowledged that Jesus died in real history and maybe even rose from the dead, and decided, no thanks. And I pray that's not the end of the story for them. Like the Pharisees, rejecting the evidence. Now, what would possess smart and thoughtful people to do that? Well, as an honest friend once reflected to me, I can see that if I start believing in Jesus, it's going to mean my whole life is going to have to change. And I don't want that. How mortifying would it have been for those Pharisees Jesus' biggest critics to admit they were wrong at that point. Maybe that's you at the moment. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence about Jesus, not because you haven't seen enough evidence, but because you can see that his claim to be king over your life is going to change things in a big way for you. I pray that today you'll see how good that is. To see the evidence and walk away is heartbreaking. And verse 40, it's absurd. Listen to Jesus' reply. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If the Pharisees keep criticizing, if the disciples shrink back, nothing is going to stop King Jesus getting the praise he deserves. Even the natural order around us recognizes its creator. The scary bit is these inanimate rocks do a better job of acknowledging their creator than these educated people. But that's the absurdity of looking your maker in the face and saying, I'd rather keep going the way things have been. Jesus makes it crystal clear which group of people is responding in a rational way to him. The disciples and even the pebbles on the ground are heaps more sensible than the protesting Pharisees. How heartening must that have been to Jesus' first disciples who kept following him after he rose and ascended and they faced ridicule from lots of the Jewish elite. They could look back to this moment and remember how right and rational it is to live for this praiseworthy king and not be surprised by how stubbornness can skew people's judgment of the evidence. And how heartening for today. I can't help but think of our secular friends who lead our communities. Although they're not religious like the Pharisees, our secular world is certainly very educated and very moral. 
and it can often do a good job of portraying Jesus' followers as a little bit flippant and fanatical. I think Luke wants to reassure us that as we face ridicule or as people around us nod towards the evidence without being affected by it, that people who praise Jesus are not unreasonable. We're on the same page as the whole created order. So don't leave it to the stones. As we watch this royal processional unfold, Luke gives us a couple of challenges and an encouragement. The first challenge is to let our opinion of Jesus be shaped by Jesus and not the crowds. As we hear the shouts of praise here, it's hard not to think of the cries of a few days later, crucify him. It seems that the voices of protest won that day. And though we don't know if these disciples joined in with that death chant, we do know that each and every one of them deserted Jesus when the authorities came. Their moment of clarity was clouded out by the angry opinions of the majority. And how easy is it to do that? To just go with the flow of groupthink. Wherever you're at with Jesus at the moment, the challenge is to take him on his own terms. It's too important to let others decide for you. What did Jesus do and say? And what do I think about that? One of the best ways to clear away the fog is to go to the primary sources and have an honest look about what the Bible says about Jesus. The rest of Luke's gospel would be a great place to start. Second challenge is to ask, are there areas in my life where I'm protesting Jesus' authority despite all the evidence of the Bible? This is what the Pharisees did, isn't it? They knew all the facts, but they could see how Jesus threatened their normal lives. It's a very human thing to do, isn't it? Why do we do that? Is there a part of your life today where you know what the Bible says, and yet you're holding back from handing it over to your Lord? And an encouragement. It is good and right to make a noise for Jesus. One of my favorite memories of Trinity Church Brighton is of singing together. Whether we had a big crazy band with percussion everywhere or just one guitar, it was so formative for me to be in a community that was on about praising Jesus from the heart. And the noise we can make in a school gym on a Sunday morning might seem relatively unimpressive, especially with everything going on outside of these doors. But what a thought to know that all creation is singing the song with those who praise Jesus. In this world that rejects the evidence and rages against its king, there is joy when we know that the Lord is in control, when we don't leave it to the stones to celebrate him, and point three, when we're moved by the Lord's tears. After facing the stone-cold stubbornness of the Pharisees, Jesus catches a glimpse of Jerusalem. And do you know that feeling at the end of a long trip when the city you've been traveling to comes into view? I experienced it just flying home from graduation and seeing the Adelaide Hills and the suburbs and 
oh, there's Adelaide Oval where we had our wedding reception. And maybe it was because I was a little bit sleep deprived, but it was a kind of emotional moment. All those memories of flying in and out and our hopes and dreams of being back here now. What did Jesus feel when he saw Jerusalem up ahead? Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is the city where as a young boy, he could be found listening to the teachers and astounding people with his insights in the temple in his father's house. This is the city that is at the center of God's promises for the future of the world. Rejoice, O Zion, your king comes to you. And it breaks his heart to see it. Because the city Jesus loves will reject its king. Do you hear his anguish in verse 42? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. It's like the heartbreak of a parent who does everything for the sake of their child, only to have them grow up and say, get out of my life. This city that's meant to be God's dwelling place on earth has gotten so used to ignoring God that when he turns up in their midst to make peace, they can look at him in the face and only see a threat. And so with tears in his eyes, Jesus speaks of what is coming for this city. In verse 43 and 4, he uses the language of Old Testament prophets to speak about God's judgment. Horror and destruction. And the stones of Jerusalem's walls and its temple, in which the people took so much pride, will be left in ruins. Jesus' heart breaks for his stubborn people. And yet, he's no doormat. He's not going to let this rejection continue forever. It's not okay. Why? Have a look at the end of verse 44. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, was born, his dad praised God for coming to his people. And when Jesus did the unthinkable and raised a widow's son from the dead, the people exclaimed, God has come to help his people. The devastating reality is, so many of the leaders and the people in the holy city missed it when God turned up. And so the king riding on a donkey comes into his temple as its judge in verse 45. And drives out those who are using God's house to fill their wallets. He's heartbroken and exasperated at the way people are treating each other and their God. What would it mean to be someone who is moved by the Lord's tears? I think there are three implications for us to take away. First, know how invested Jesus is in you and me and everyone. History tells us that Jerusalem did face terrible destruction in AD 70. And yet, God has not brought that final judgment upon the world yet. Jesus is holding back to give more people the chance to find peace with him. 
And you can imagine him watching his world with people shaking their fists against him, looking for life and meaning in anything but him, with tears in his eyes. He's fully invested. And we know that because he was willing not just to shed his tears, but his blood for us. If only Jerusalem knew the things that would make for their peace. Could they have guessed that they'd be soon dragging their king outside the city gates to crucify him? It certainly didn't take the Lord by surprise. That's why he came, to take up that cross so that rebellious people, then and now, could be saved. And to borrow an Old Testament phrase, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And even in those moments when his enemies seemed to be winning the day, the king said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in God's kindness, some were brought to their senses and they came to know peace with God. And if you're here today as a Christian, the only reason that's possible is because Jesus is that invested in you. And yet many remained in their stubbornness and still do to this day. And if deep down you know that's where you're at, hear the risen Jesus saying to you, pleading with you today, there is a treatment, don't ignore it. Come home to me. Perhaps you're a follower of Jesus, and, but there's something you've been holding on to, a habit, a relationship, a part of your life where you don't want to acknowledge his authority. We've seen today just how infectious a little bit of stubbornness can be. So don't go home to bed and hope it'll be okay. Is there something you need to bring before Jesus today? He's invested. Second implication, the Lord's tears show us just how serious the realities of heaven and hell are to him. This passage doesn't just let us say that everyone's going to be fine in the end. And you don't want to meet this king when he returns in all his power without having accepted his generous terms of peace. And yet this passage also doesn't let us say that God takes pleasure in judging people and so should Christians. In God's world, there is no judgment without tears i wonder how this hits you today how might the lord's tears impact how you think about and speak to those dear to you who don't yet know his terms of peace third implication rethinking the us and them conversations i don't know if this is a thing here but have you noticed that sometimes when groups of christians get together how easy it can be to start talking about them out there as a bit of a hopeless case, you know, our godless society going from bad to worse. Have you felt that kind of resigned cynicism before about the world out there making life hard for Christians? How might the Lord's tears affect that? Rather than thinking about how sad it is for Christians that people are against Jesus we might be moved to compassion and even weeping by how tragic it is for those people who are currently living as Jesus' enemies. I've been thinking about what makes me shrink back from 
wanting to warn people more about the realities of heaven and hell and what can make me a bit cynical or tempt me to pretend that everything's fine. I think that part of me is a bit scared about how much I might find myself caring if I open myself up to seeing people just a bit more like Jesus does. I'm scared about the anguish and even the tears that might be involved if I was to love people just a bit more. You might have heard this quote floating around from the atheist entertainer Penn Jillette. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or evangelize. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, do you think that, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Wow, an atheist entertainer. He's totally onto it, right? This passage has challenged me to rethink those relationships where I've become a bit jaded about trying to share the gospel, to start praying again for some people, and to keep caring in the face of stubbornness. I'm so thankful that when I was a polite but stubborn teenager, wandering from God, that people from this church didn't shrink back from telling me about the realities of heaven and hell. In hindsight, it's obvious to me that they were moved by the compassion of their Lord. And one of my enduring memories of Trinity Brighton is how those realities motivated people to work really hard to give heaps of opportunities for lots of people to hear about the goodness of Jesus. And that's why you're in a great place if you're here exploring things today. And that's why it's so exciting, isn't it, that Easter's coming up this weekend as another chance to invite neighbors and loved ones to come along and hear about the hope that Jesus came to bring. In a world that protests its king, there is joy and meaning to be found, not in going on as normal, but in finding confidence in the Lord's control, in joining all creation in praising him, and in being moved by his tears. Is there something you need to bring before Jesus today? Do you need to accept his offer of peace with God? Today would be a great day to do that. Or is there someone on your mind who you long to know his mercy? Well, knowing that he is fully invested in all those things, why don't we spend some time now praying to him? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to be our humble and praiseworthy King. Please teach all of us to live our whole lives for his honor. Please forgive us when we go on living as if we're the ones in charge. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to shed not only your tears, but your own blood to bring us peace with God. And Lord, we think of those dear to us who don't yet know the things that make for peace. Grow our compassion for them, Lord, and please show your mercy to many more. Amen.